Good morning, Rogers Park. Good morning. It's good to be here. If we haven't met, my name is Phil Adams. I have the privilege of serving here on our network here in the north side of the city. It is my prayer this morning that as we share God's word that God speaks to your heart. We desperately and humbly need to hear God's voice in our life. Amen? As I've already been said, my parents are here. I was going to get them to stand up, but I'm not going to get them. They look worried. <laughs> Let's turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. If you've got a Bible there, Romans chapter 3, we're going to look from verses, 19 to, or verses 9 to 20. If you've got one of the house Bibles at the door on the way in, it'll be page 548. For everyone else, Romans 3, verses 9 to 20. As you know, we're in a series working through the book of Romans. For the last five weeks, we have been uh, looking at the subject of sin as Paul has been uh, guiding us through that as he wrote it originally for house churches, home churches in Rome around 2,000 years ago. In a moment, we're just going to read that passage, but let me give you a little bit of a recap of what's going on because Paul has been relentlessly clarifying a big idea over and over again. The highly religious, button-up Christians... Jewish Christians were holding up their historical heritage and saying that they were the chosen people of God. Our genealogy connects us to Abraham and Moses. God chose to give us the law, but Paul has been clarifying to them that they are just as guilty before God as the Greeks, the pagans, the non-Jews who they were looking down their noses at. Because as Paul has said, it doesn't matter if you have the law, it matters if you do the law. Because Paul has said to them, it doesn't matter if you think you can cover all of your sin with your self-presentation while you practice the very same things. You preach against stealing, you teach against adultery, you protest against stealing, and underneath your shiny hood and all of your skillful self-justification and your smooth talking, you're just as corrupt. Oh man, every one of you who judges, you have no excuse for passing judgment on another. You've opened the door wide to be condemned yourself. Paul needs his readers to get this. That's why he's spending three chapters on it before he moves on. He needs the prideful the self-righteous, the self-justified, the self-preserving to see their sin. Because often we don't see our sin. But Paul has been arguing hard through these chapters in Romans so that the religious, the well-kept, the middle class in Rome see it, feel it. So that they can recognize that they stand shoulder to shoulder in their sin with the rest of humanity. When it comes to the religious Jews in Rome, it's like there is a fire in the theater. And those in the front row, they can smell smoke. But because they've got the best seats in the house, they don't think the smoke's their problem. Paul is saying, you are all in the same precarious situation. Paul is saying, from the cheap seats to the box seats to the front row seats, sin is burning in you all. 
and the fire is burning in your hearts and the smoke is seeping out your nostrils. It doesn't matter if you're wearing Gap or Gucci, you smell like smoke. And this is what the scriptures demand from us today, to see that when it comes to our sinfulness, we stand shoulder to shoulder with the rest of humanity. South RP, we stand shoulder to shoulder with each other, no matter your background, your race, your ethnicity, your heritage, or your income. And any good in our lives, any fruit from our lives, any submission and bowing the knee to God in our lives is through Christ alone, who has found us and has empowered us by his Holy Spirit to transform us. We corporately bring nothing to the table. And so we as the people of God stand shoulder to shoulder, boasting in nothing but Christ crucified. And it is through and with this posture of humility and solidarity with others, Paul knows the church can unite. Without this posture of, of humility and solidarity, we cannot unite together in our mission of reaching the world with the gospel. From out those doors to Tunisia, to Iraq, to around the world. Let's read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20 before this stand literally goes underground. I don't know if you're watching it, but it's dropping and dropping and dropping. <laughs> Let's read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we come humbly to it. God, submitting ourselves to it, acknowledging that it is truth. God, we have feelings. God, we have ideas. We have thoughts. And yet, God, we have to bring them to your word to check them to see if they are truth, God, because your word is what speaks and cuts into us, God, so do that today. God, remove any voices in our minds, remove any words that I say that are not of you, and may we solely attentively listen, God, to your voice, God. We need your spirit to work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, Jimmy stepped out of the main flow of the argument to address some of the pushback that the Apostle Paul was getting from the original readers of Rome. And the pushback, as we've already kind of said, is that the religious Jews were looking to find any argument that they could to keep themselves in better standing before God than others. There must be something. We can't possibly just be in the same situation as those people out there in the cheap seats. There must be some angle. 
we can come from that makes Paul's teaching false. We have to find a way to cling to our elevated status before God. And last week, Jimmy did a great job at just saying that there is no loophole. It doesn't exist. And now this week, Paul is wrapping up what he has said in the past three chapters. He's concluding and he's focusing in to explain our sinfulness. And so we today, we are concluding this focus on sin that we've had for the past five weeks. Well done for turning up. So now he's saying, okay, let's wrap this up. Let's get this straight and clear. The NIV, it says in verse 9, what will we conclude then? After all of the talk, what will we conclude? And then he asks another question. Do we Jews have any advantage at all? No. No. (laughs) He's making it explicit. No, not at all. What does this mean, Rogers Park? When it comes to us standing before God and giving an account for our lives, there is nothing that we can do or be that will cause God to judge any of us more leniently than anyone else. No matter our race, our income, our good works. In and of ourselves, there is nothing we can do or be that will cancel out or hide our sin. From the cheap seats to the box seats to the front row seats, we all smell like smoke because the fire of sin is burning in our hearts. I'm repeating it because Paul's repeating it. And then Paul gives one of the clearest answers for why this is the case. The second half of verse 9 says this, For as we have already said, all people, whether Jews or Greeks, all of humanity is under the power of sin. Paul is going, he's going big picture here. Paul is saying, all people from every context and country, from every era in history, have been and continue to be under the power of sin. All of humanity is born under the power of sin. What does this mean? Here Paul does something really cool. He, he writes down a kind of mashup of a poem by quoting from six different songs or poems found in the Old Testament. Five from the book of Psalms, one from the book of Isaiah. You maybe can see it up on the screen how the first one, Romans 3, 10 to 12, is found in Psalm 14. The next one, 3 to 14, 13 to 14, is from Psalm 5, from 140, 110. Each of these sections, as you go down there, in Romans chapter 3, is Paul taking parts of poems, parts of songs in the books of Psalms, and then he's stringing them together to make his own kind of mashup of a poem. It's called pearl stringing. Back in the day, back when Paul was alive, there was a thing called pearl stringing. So when we come to exegeting or seeking to understand what is being said in the Psalms, we see that they are a kind of unique medium of communication. Psalms are not stories. They are not sermons. Psalms in the Bible, there's 150 of them. If you open your Bible up right in the middle, you'll find them. Psalms are intentionally entering into a space where emotion is key. The Psalms are a prayerful expression of humanity's experience. Our experiences and our feelings in life can be difficult to express. We feel something, but we don't know how to say it, and that's where poetry comes in. The book of Psalms is an ancient book of poetry that models to us how we can express ourselves to God. 
So when we preach or we teach poetry from the Bible, the struggle is that we're trying to put into words something that was already very difficult to put into words. T.S. Eliot, the poet, was reading one of his poems at an event. After he finished reading the poem, somebody shouted out, what does it mean? So T.S. Eliot looked down and he reread the poem. <laughs> Let me explain this again. I will uh, break T.S. Eliot's rule. I will read the poem again. <laughs> but I will then pull out two ideas that will help explain to us what it means for humanity to be under the power of sin. Romans 3, 10 to 18 says this, as is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. The two things that I want to pull out from this Number one, to be under the power of sin is a matter of trajectory. Number two, to be under the power of sin is a matter of association. Firstly, the first one is hard to grasp intellectually. The second one is hard to grasp emotionally. Firstly, to be born under the power of sin is a matter of trajectory. Verse 11 says, no one seeks for God. Verse 12, it says, all have turned aside. Then down in verse 18, where it says, there is no fear of God. Paul is quoting from Psalm 36, where the writer describes people who have literally flipped God's law, inverted it, and are living opposite to it. it. And what keeps all of these verses together is that they are all speaking about living a life in the wrong direction. So this is what Paul is revealing in relation to humanity being under the power of sin. He's saying to be born under the power of sin means that we are born stuck under a magnet that orients our life away from God. We are born with a perpetual disorientation. My wife bought some sunflowers this week, and I think this is what inspired me to say this. But we are like sunflowers that were made to grow up and look towards the sun and bend towards the sun and look to the sun and be warmed by the sun. But something has gone terribly wrong within us and something is pulling us in the opposite direction. And the sunflowers who were made to look to the sun, be warmed by the sun, that were named after the sun, now turn their backs from warmth turn their backs from God and wither. Perpetual disorientation. But also to be born under the power of sin means to be born with the desire to want this disorientation. We want to orient our lives away from God. We are born as victims of sin. We can't not and we are born perpetrators of sin, we don't want to stop. And this is difficult to grasp. The suicidal nature of sin is hard to grasp. 
But what we're really getting at here is that all of humanity is born with a natural bent to get away from God, to run from God, to distrust God, to reject God as God. We have a bent to be our own God, to be in control of our own lives, to be our own authority. We might not hate God, we might even like the idea of God, as long as in practice we can critique him. As long as in practice, we live under our own authority. And so to live under the power of sin is to be bent in towards self. And we say, but look at all the good things people do. Look at all the kind people in the world. The problem that Paul is pointing out is that even though we might do good things, although people might give to charity, although might pe people might give to church, although my people might um, protest against injustice, might people might be upstanding citizens, but under the power of sin, without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, humanity isn't doing these things for God, but for self or for another idol. The sunflower may lift its head towards something, but not towards the sun. An atheist can have a good marriage. There's no doubt. They can be good parents. There's no doubt. But if humanity isn't living in service to God and God alone for his glory, we are taking the flicker of morality, the flicker of life that God has placed within humanity which theologians call common grace, and we are bending it, this grace, to serve our own ends. Even the trajectory of our good is off. Probably the most sneaky way this sneaks into the church is we do things to get something from God. We want his blessing, so we come to church. We want his blessing, so, that we, so we hang out with the church crowd. We, we want to have a good reputation, so we serve and we don't even notice that we aren't responding to God with love, but are bartering with God to give us blessing, rather chasing after him for him. There's a striking visual of this in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, where it says, our good works are as filthy rags. We are wearing something, and we might think it looks good, and the people around us think it looks good too, but God sees the manipulation. God sees the selfish intent behind the reasons, behind our kindness. And so, when we give our lives to Christ, we don't just repent of our bad deeds. We also repent of the reasons behind our good deeds. Jay had it right a couple weeks ago, nobody can hide. So firstly, to be born under the power of sin is a matter of trajectory. It's that all of humanity is born with lives oriented away from the sun. And secondly, what Paul brings out through this poem is that to be under the power of sin is a matter of association. It's a matter of association. As I mentioned, the Psalms are an expression of human experience. They are someone coming to God and pouring out their heart within a particular circumstance. The Psalms are a response to life. And so behind each of the Psalms is a story. 
that created the reason why someone would pray and sing. Psalm 51, for example, is David's cry of repentance after he forces a woman to sleep with him before he goes and has her husband killed. Then afterwards, he repents and he writes Psalm 51. Psalm 56 is written when King David was hunted and taken captive by the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. So when we we read the Psalms, when we come to them, what we see all around us is that life is not sanitized. Thank goodness that the Bible is not PG-13 because then it would have very little to say about our lives. When what we can forget that the original readers of Romans wouldn't have been able to forget or not notice is that when Paul mentions throats like open graves and feet that are swift to shed blood, Paul isn't simply speaking hyperbolically to communicate how we all say nasty things or that we can all feel vengeful. Paul is taking his original readers in Rome and he's placing them as the villains in the stories behind the Psalms. And he's revealing them to to be associated with humanity's deepest depravities and failings. Paul is taking his upstanding religious leaders, those that have lived their lives unassociated with shame, unassociated with broken homes and broken marriages and broken prison systems. He's taking those unassociated with crime and addiction and debt and gangs, and he's saying, you stand shoulder to shoulder with them. All of humanity is them. In chapter 1, the they is us, and we are not sanitized. We are not PG-13. What Paul is associating the religious leaders with is shocking. As World One ended, the Ottoman Empire was crumbling, which is now modern-day Turkey, and within Turkey, a fierce bitterness was developing towards those that were Armenian because they were showing allegiance or their allegiance was being questioned. In 1915, there was two million Armenians living in Turkey. Two million. Seven seven years later, by 1922, there was less than 400,000. A man by the name of Raphael Lemkin, a Polish lawyer, was called to investigate what happened. Where did 1.5 million people go? he would then go on to coin the word genocide. The attempt to eliminate an entire people group through expulsion and execution. Armenians mark the day April 24th as a day of remembrance every year since on April 24th, 1915, several hundred Armenian intellects, artists, and poets were rounded up and executed. But on that day, one of the artists executed was a man called Simanto, and before he died and was executed, he wrote a poem called The Dance. It's about a lady caring for her neighbor who had been stabbed while watching a group of Armenian women be killed out his window, out her window. It goes like this. On a field of ash where Armenian life was still dying, a German woman trying not to cry told me the horror she witnessed. This story which I tell you which cannot be told, 
I saw with my own eyes behind my window of hell. Crushing my teeth from terrible rage with my cruel human eyes, I saw. It was in the garden city. Thank you. It was in the garden city, which was turned to a heap of ashes. The corpses were piled high to the top of the trees. And from the waters, from the fountains, from the streams, from the roads, the rebellious murmur of blood still speaking into my ears. Don't be afraid, I must tell you what I saw so people understand the crimes that men do to men. For two days on the road to the cemetery, let the hearts of the world understand. It was Sunday morning, the first and helpless Sunday, which rose over the corpses when inside my room from evening to dawn I was bending over the agony of a girl that had been stabbed. I was wetting her death with my tears. Suddenly from afar, a dark crowd standing in a vineyard, whipping 20 brides and singing dirty songs. Leaving the poor dying girl on her mattress, I approached the balcony of my window, which looked on hell. In the vineyard, the black mob became a forest. A savage roared to the brides, you must dance. You must dance when our drums sound and the whips started cracking on the bodies. 20 brides, hand in hand, started their round dance. The tears flowed from their eyes like wounds. Ah, how much I envied my wounded neighbor. Because I heard that with a peaceful moan cursing the universe, the poor beautiful Armenian girl who lay in my apartment, her young dove spirit gave wings towards the stars. In vain, I moved my fists against the mob. You must dance, roared the, roared the furious crowd. You must dance until your death. The 20 beautiful brides fell to the ground, exhausted. Stand up, they shrieked. Then someone brought to the mob a barrel of oil. Oh, human justice, let me spit at your face. They anointed the 20 brides hastily with that liquid. You must dance, they roared. Here is a perfume you will never find in Arabia. They ignited the bodies of the brides with a torch, and the charcoal corpses rolled from dance to death. In my terror, I closed the shutters of my window like a storm, and approaching my lonely dead girl, I asked, how can I dig out my eyes? How can I dig out my eyes? Tell me. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What we don't see that the Romans churches would not have been able to avoid is that Paul was associating them with stories that revealed humanity's deepest depravities. Scytherpy, I am hiding behind Paul here. <laughs> Paul, as the grand finale to the first three chapters of Romans on Sin, he is taking his original readers and he's placing them as the villains in stories that reveal humanity's deepest depravities and failings. I'm hiding behind the Apostle Paul to say God's word associates them with us. There was a Roman playwright called Terence. He lived around 190 BC, 200 years before Christ, a really long time ago. He was a former slave from Africa, and he penned this phrase that I am human, nothing is alien to me. It's a phrase that has popped up over the years in different places, but Maya Angelou, the American poet and civil rights activist, wrote this in, refer in reference to, I am human, nothing is alien to me. She said, if you can internalize 
at least a portion of that phrase, you will never be able to say of an act, well, I couldn't do that. No matter how heinous the crime, if a human being did it, you have to say, I have in me all of the components that are in her or him. And that is pretty much what Paul wants his religious readers to see. What he wants us to see. The human predicament is that we all stand shoulder to shoulder under the power of sin. We all share the same sinful components. Number one, that caused the trajectory of our lives to be against God. And number two, we all share the same sinful components that cause no sin to be unassociated from our hearts. Pride, envy, jealousy, hatred, anger, bitterness. And once we see the sin in our hearts, once we, once we feel the sin in our hearts, our response before God should be silence. Silence. Ever since the beginning of chapter 1, if you remember, after Paul gave the thesis statement for the letter, Paul has been jumping all over the place. He's been talking about sin from this angle. He's been talking about sin from that angle. He's looked at sin this way and that way. And basically what he's been doing through these chapters is arguing against what he thinks, what he thinks the religious leaders would say to try and stay in a better position before God than anyone else. Paul's been pushing back on their pushback, pushbacks, but now he is done. In verse 19, Paul closes this section. He reminds them, you were the chosen people of God. You were given the law from Moses. So that when you find out that you couldn't keep the law, so when you find out that you couldn't do it, you would share with the world in humility the problem of sin. For the law gives you knowledge of sin before anybody else. You were given the definition of humanity's greatest problem. But instead of showing solidarity with humility with the world, you decided to try and elevate yourself above the world. You were chosen by God, given the privilege of your word to share with humanity the problem. For as you learned through your history before anybody else, by good works, nobody can stand righteous before God. Your history proves this. Your history does not prove that you're elevated. Your history proves that you're as sinful as everybody else. But instead of sharing the problem, you've pretended like you don't need saving. You have sat back, judging and shaking your heads, watching CNN tell us about the world when we are called to go and tell the world. Paul finishes these three chapters on sin. After all of this talk with what the Jews should have been modeling before God and to the world, Silence. 
Humanity stands before God with backs turned and hands empty, smelling like smoke. There's nothing to say. Our sin just is. That's where these weeks, this week's passage ends with the knowledge of sin. But what is so interesting is if we think about these churches in Rome and we think of these house churches in Rome who are reading this letter, who's there? Who's, who's sitting in the seats? Who's showing up to church every week? When the religious Jews were kicked out of Rome, who took up the mantle of leadership in the church? The pagans, the, the Greeks, the Gentiles. You see, as summary, Romans 1, 2, 3 was never really written to cause the pagans and the Greeks and the Gentiles to see their sin. Even though chapter 1 was a very good reminder. And not because they weren't sinful, quite the opposite. It wasn't written to point out their sin because their sin had never been questioned. It was always just presumed. The sins of the Greeks and the Gentiles had made the headlines. They'd been part of the gang violence. They'd been sexually promiscuous. They'd sold the drugs. They'd been to the abortion clinics. They danced in the strip clubs. Their sin just was. They didn't have a chance at self-presentation. They didn't have a chance at self-justification. So we have to ask the question, why were they there? How did they get in? How did they become part of this highly religious Jewish sect? Okay, they may have the cheap seats at the, at the back, but how did they even get in? Who let them in? How did they have the audacity to come in and to take leadership? I laughed over the summer and now they're a small group leader. How did they even get on the greeting team? Who let them in? Who let all of us in? Rogers Park. Jesus. Because Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus opened the door. And now Paul is writing to the churches in Rome to say, stop acting like there are front row seats and cheap seats and box seats because you all are brothers and sisters. Sit together and work together. Jesus holds the door, not us, not you. These past three chapters have been hard for some of us. They've been hard for those in this room that don't need their sin shoved in their face. Those that see it every day in their past and the brokenness of their present. The past five weeks have been hard for those who are already silent and empty before God. So I say to you, you are where we need to be. Because it's there that Jesus meets us. Let me finish with this. In the Old Testament, God speaks to a prophet called Hosea, and he says, I want you to go, and I want you to marry this lady called Gomer. 
So Hosea, he obeys and he, he marries her. But it's not long after they get married that Gomer begins to wander and she starts coming home late. He sees text messages on her phone and Gomer starts to cheat on Hosea. Then she's pregnant, but the child is not Hosea's. Her adultery increases over time and gets worse and worse. And she goes from one man to another man and Hosea is watching. She gets pregnant again. Eventually she leaves him and her life spirals out of control and she increasingly gets worse and worse as she is passed from one man to another man until she is sold into slavery. Then God speaks to Hosea again and he says, Hosea, I want you to go find Gomer because I want to show you something, Hosea. So Hosea goes and he finds her in the market and she is standing there tied to a post with her eyes to the ground, rags hanging from her. And God says, Hosea, buy her back. So Hosea starts bidding for his wife and she hears his voice above the crowd willing to pay whatever the price. And God says to Hosea, buy her back. And he purchases her freedom and he takes her home. Hosea says, God, what did you want to show me? Hosea, I want you to see that you might not seek after me, but I seek after you. And that's how much I love you. The beauty of the gospel is that, yes, the gut punch of Romans chapter 1 to 3 is true. We don't seek after God, but he seeks after us. And he seeks after those we love. When we run away from God into the crowds of sin, God comes looking. And when he finds us, he saves us. He places a new component in our hearts called the Holy Spirit, which turns us back towards the sun. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who hunger will hunger no more. The last will be first, and the silent will be heard. Let's pray. God, we thank you, God, for the privilege of your word. God, to know the definition of our sin, to know the situation that we are in, that we have turned from you, God, but we praise you, we thank you, God, that you didn't leave us there, that, God, you came from heaven to earth to see of us, to die on a cross for our sins, to redeem us, to purchase us back, to give us our freedom in you, to bring us home. God, may we sing our praises to you. And God, may we not neglect the responsibility we have for the rest of the world. May it never be said, God, of us that we sat thinking that we were better than the world when we should have been going to the world. In Jesus' name.